You are now tuning in to the Braving Wander podcast. I am so honored to have you here. It is my purpose. It is my mission to hold this safe and sacred space for you, for your healing, for your self-care. This is where we become vulnerable. This is where we create community, hold each other accountable, and walk each other through our transformations, our growth. This space is special, this space is sacred, and this space is just for you. Thank you for tuning in. Guys, I'm so, so happy for this conversation we are about to have. You guys know I've been talking about um, the integrative energy healing training that I got to work at with Milana Snow and Wellness Official. And I told you guys, we've, we had so many amazing participants who I had really great conversations with and which is why I wanted to do this series. Savi Habib is one of them. At the end of the training, I walked up to her and I told her that her story spoke to me deeply. And I really wanted you guys to get an insight into who she is, what she does, what her story is, and um, why it made me feel so deeply and why I connected to her so deeply. So for everyone the community, please welcome Savvy. Hello, love, how are you? Hi, my dear, I'm so good. I'm good. You're such a joy, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, please introduce yourself to the community. I didn't say enough, so I want you to go in depth about who you are, what you do, what you represent, all of that fun stuff. Yeah, um, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, I was just thinking right before you started recording, I was like, me and Stacey are just so connected. We are. We really are. I love it. Like, I just felt this intrinsic pull to you since I met you. So I love it. Um, and I'm so happy to be here. And so I'm a holistic health coach and I mostly focus on helping folks heal their relationships with substances, their bodies and themselves. And honestly, I'm going to be totally honest. I don't actually like the words health coach. Like I don't like the words coach for some reason. It sort of makes me like every time I say it, it makes me cringe a little bit. <laughs> Why? Let's go into that a little bit. Why does it make you cringe? I sometimes I'm like, is this like a self-worth thing? Or mm. I'm like, I wonder if it's just like, I never did sports. So I'm also sort of like, is it that like, is it like my cynical side that sort of like coaching you know? on what and what a coach is in the first place yeah exactly so yeah. honestly lately I think I I think of myself more as like a support okay you know, in people's yeah. personal journeys and um mostly I'm interested in helping folks like I said with substances their bodies and their relationships with themselves and so I got into this work like I was thinking a couple of days ago, honestly, I feel like my IBS is what brought me to like I love spirituality that. Yeah. because I was like, okay, because I was, when I was 19, so like five years ago, I was such a, um, such a nihilist. Mm -hmm. Like I was just like, God is dead. Like nothing means anything. And it was super, yeah, I, I was not, I wasn't raised religious. Mm -hmm. Um, my mom is, my mom left Islam and my dad left Mormonism. And so we were raised like the black sheep of our family. And so it's so funny. <laughs> my partner actually has a Christmas card that I gave him when we first started, like when I was 19. And it literally says like in glitter, just like God is dead. Cause I was in just- In glitter? Not in glitter. In glitter. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> That is hilarious. You wrote God is dead in glitter. Merry Christmas. Yeah, I was like, Merry Christmas. But it was like, I think at that point in time, like being cynical was so much of my identity, mm. you know? I can relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. But I definitely want to hear more about how, what does your road to spirituality look like? How did you get from saying God is dead in glitter <laughs> to doing the work you do, doing breath work and participating in these trainings and all of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's why I was thinking a couple of days ago, I'm like, maybe it was my IBS. Cause my IBS is really like, I had, I was diagnosed with IBS when I was like 10 years old, mm -hmm. which is sort of crazy to get diagnosed that young. Right. Um, yeah. 
I think now looking back at it, right, I'm just like, why did no one see like all like just this very traumatized little girl, you know? And but I around like a cut like I guess it was almost four years ago, not that like four years ago, a while ago, I my IBS had just gotten really bad. Like I just was having diarrhea every day. Sorry if that's like too much info. No, girl, <laughs> So I was having diarrhea like every day or I was constipated. I was always bloated. I was always in pain. And I don't think anything was going to get me to look at myself. Like, I think the first thing that got me to look at myself was vanity, honestly. Cause I was like, I'm bloated. Like, I didn't even really care that I didn't feel good. It was mostly just that I was bloated and felt like out of control in my body. In your body. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And like, I was like, well, I don't like how this looks. So I better figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I had had bad experiences with the doctors who had diagnosed me with IBS and like the treatment that I'd gotten as a kid. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll go try this naturopath. And so I went to a naturopath and did like a SIBO test and all the other tests that they give you when they're trying to figure out if you have IBS. And Um, honestly, it was just like, I did, so I did that. And then I, I didn't have SIBO. I got some recommendations. I started a probiotic, things like that, like very basic things nowadays. Like I feel like four years ago, probably not as like, I couldn't just Google it and find all the steps. Got you. And so, but now I'm like, oh, it's like, if anyone came to me and was like, I'm bloated and I have IBS, I'd be like, I got it, yeah. Like, here the steps, yeah. Exactly. And so, but it was really that process of like, I started to get more curious about my health, really. And then I started to honestly sort of like, I think I had had an, like I had had an eating disorder since I was like 10 years, like 11 years old is when my eating disorder started. So this naturopath was like the first person who had ever like heard me out on my eating disorder mm-hmm. when it came to my IBS. Like I have been making myself throw up since I was 11 years old um, and yeah. And like the more, like now as an adult, I look at that and I was making myself throw up from 11 to 21 years old. And I don't know why a doctor had never asked me, like when we know how many young women struggle with eating disorders, I don't know why that was never a part of the conversation. That's what I'm wondering too. You ask right? questions, right? Yeah. And so this naturopath, I was like, it was finally, I was like, yeah, you know, like I've been bulimic for 10 years. Like, I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that I can barely digest things, you know? And it does, like it does surprisingly, like making yourself throw up will make your, will like confuse your digestive tract. And so that was really how I started healing. Like it started through my digestion. And I think it started through, once I started healing my digestion, I also started to look at other ways that I had been harming myself in terms of my health. So like I smoked cigarettes from when I was like 16 to 21. And in that same year, I was like, well, and I'd been drinking, like I'd been drinking since I was like honestly, probably like 11, like I probably had my first drink when I was like 11, you know? And I remember the first time I got drunk, like so vividly, actually just really enjoying the feeling of being out of control. Yeah. So I just started, I had, I feel like I started a lot of habits really young. So I started making myself grow up when I was 11. I started probably drinking around when I was 11. Like I did like, And I feel fine sharing this, but I did like mushrooms when I was like 11 years old. Like I just started, it was honestly like looking back on it, it is a like God's gift that I did not end up worse than I did. No, like my, the way I'm looking at you is like, I, I, the fact that I haven't seen you on like A&E or something, (laughs) like not even to make jokes, but the fact that I haven't seen you on A&E is unbelievable. No, totally. Like, I feel like 
I could have been on, I could have been one of those crazy teens on like, not crazy teens. I shouldn't say that they're crazy. They're probably just going through a lot, but I could have been one of those teenagers on like, Easily. Dr. you know, and now we understand how the smallest of things could, it could just be that one thing that kind of puts you on the other, on the opposite side, you know, you know, just literally one thing keeping you from, you know, being that other person, being the person on A&E where, I don't even know where to begin, but I want to go back because I think mm -hmm. this is a huge part of your story. And it's something that I connected with when you're talking about eating disorders. One mm -hmm. of the things yeah. I mentioned to you at the end of the training was that we both come from, we're both women of color mm -hmm. and being a woman of color doesn't really allow you to have an eating disorder almost. It doesn't allow you to go through all of these, you know, challenges, you know, they're seen as very Western things. So you're talking about having an eating disorder at 11, starting mm -hmm. to drink at 11 and all of these things so young. How, do, how are you introduced into this world? Who talks yeah. about eating disorders or how to vomit or not eat or whatever it was at 11 years old? I'm so wild because I also remember this almost like from a third, it's almost like I'm, I, the memory I have is like, you know, those memories where you can see yourself you're like looking at yourself. I have this like a real, this really clear memory of me being 11 and I felt sick. So I just felt nauseous. And my mom showed me how to make myself throw up. Mm. And so mm. that, I mean, obviously she didn't realize that that was going to become like a decade long stint of bulimia, but also my mom took laxatives like laxatives were sort of like a common thing. And again, like, I, I think it's like this combination because I don't want to blame my mom by any means, but I think it's like this weird combination of like, I had IBS. So like they would put me on laxatives when I was a kid. And then my mom like had laxatives in the house for when she had IBS. And like, I don't, my mom has her own relationship to food, which you know, obviously influenced me. Like it was very like, mm -hmm. it was sort of like a yo-yo, like diet to not dieting, sometimes taking laxatives. Like, I just don't think I really understood. And I think a lot of us don't understand like what a healthy relationship with food is. Right. I agree. Absolutely. And so, or like, it just like what our bodies, like what it means to feel good in your body and in your digestion. So, yeah, so I think it was just like, you know, my mom and I told like when you said like as women of color, right, like I think it is so specific to to having like a parent who is a first generation immigrant, like being second generation immigrants, I think to me has shaped my life so much in the sense that on in my mom's world therapy is like a western thing right eating Absolutely. disorders yes like eating disorders is sort of like white people shit you know it is and, like, and my family like people in my family will say stuff like that especially when we were growing up oh that is that's you're not a white girl don't adopt those those ideals you're not white that's not we don't do that we don't do that Okay, that's I heard that a lot growing up, and not just with food either. With a lot of things, we don't we don't do that. That's not our culture, you know. So I absolutely relate to that. One hundred percent. And like my, so I'm half white, and so on my dad's side, I have a brother who's a psychologist, and so like it's really different. It's sort of jarring to have those two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um. And it's not like everything's perfect on my dad's side either because he's much older. So I think that generation gap is very different. But I feel like when I was a kid, like people who had parents who were in their like middle age, you know, like you're how, like my mom's sort of like what people would expect my mom to be. She's like in her forties. Mm -hmm. She had me when she was like 21, 22, which wasn't crazy in the nineties. Right. But because of our cultural differences and because she grew up in Afghanistan and I grew up in the States, like there were so many places that we couldn't meet each other. Mm -hmm. And so when it came to like me being bulimic, it was just 
not something I think my mom was prepared to know what to do with. Mm -hmm. And I also think that, you know, in my lineage, there is a lot of emotional mental health problems and a lot of like stuff that my family has shoved under the rug and that we've shoved under the rug um, for like the sake of pride or like whatever it is, like cultural things, you know? And um, so I think when I started to outwardly be like, I need help, like I cannot handle this. I think it was hard for my mom and my dad to really know what to do with. Cause like when I was 16, I had bulimia and I tried to kill myself like a couple of times. And so I don't think my mom knew what, like she didn't know what to do with a 16 year old who was like yeah. cutting herself, making herself throw up and like. It's it was a, a foreign concept to her because again it's something that they don't deal with something that's even they don't even talk about because again we don't we don't do that that's not us so you felt comfortable enough were you comfortable enough to be open to them about it or was it something that they just kind of found out or saw you doing and then they started asking questions or were you like hey this is I'm going through something and it's you know yeah and really quick I just want to speak on like the not talking about it thing I think a big part of like my mom's perception and I can't speak for her and I can't speak for my family but like I think another part of it too right is that they survived a war you know like they got out of a country where a war was happening where Soviets were invading where bombs were being dropped you know and that is so many worlds away from like then having a teenager in the United States where like I have a house I have enough food I have enough water like no one's going to be shot outside of my front door. You know what I mean? Like there's no military that's going to like take my, take our livelihood from us. And I mean, it's a very different experience for her. And I think, I think so much of our disconnect has been like, sometimes my mom is like, how can I hear this American girl talking about these issues like what does she have to complain about you know almost like this is very very small compared to things that are really going on you know in this world and it's like the truth it's like the thing that like a lot of parents say right like there are kids who can't eat you know like you need to finish all the food on your plate you know which is just this really shame-filled guilt-filled way of making kids feel like they don't have a voice right and like that our issues aren't valid enough and my mom and I tried to like my mom bless her because she tried her best to understand me but and like I think the way to answer your question of like how they found out and like how I started talking with them about it it was really that I was cutting myself from a young age and so um And like, looking back on it, like, I know people say, like, when I was a teenager and people say, would say that it was a cry for help, I would be like, that's so minimizing and blah, 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 blah. But now I'm like, it was definitely a cry for help, Mm -hmm. like 100%. And so to hear you, you wanted someone to see you, to understand you. Yeah. Someone like, like you're crying out, you're silently crying out for someone to kind of just sit you down and have you just pour out and say this is what is going on with me yeah exactly like if they don't like I didn't feel like my pain was being heard Mm -hmm. so it was almost like if I can physically harm myself then maybe that will like get someone to pay attention yeah you know and hindsight is 2020 but so that was really sort of what I think that was probably around when I was 11 or 12 when I first started cutting myself and so I think my parents noticed around 12 um and like when my parents like so it's really weird like my family is super weird so my dad is in his 70s and he's from Idaho and he's an ex-Mormon and then my mom is like I, she would hate me saying how old she is. So she's like in her middle age forties and she's from Afghanistan. And then they got married when they got married. 
when my mom was like 20, my mom's family basically disowned us. Mm-hmm. And so that happened. And then my mom really like the people I was raised around was really like my dad's Mormon family. And then, but also my dad had already had a marriage and had kids before he married my mom. And so he had kids when he was 19 years old and he's from a rural Idaho farm community. And he had three children, um, one who is a psychologist, one's a chef, and then, um, one is a mom and that's like, she's, she's very committed to being a mom. And so they, um, they're all like in their fifties. So they're older than my mom. They're older than your mom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they're all older than my mom is. And so my mom is like, has only been speaking English for a couple of years and is suddenly the stepmother to these kids who are 10 years older than her. Mm -hmm. And married to this man who's like 20 years her senior and um and then my parents got divorced when I was eight and then my dad ended up marrying my nanny so I had a nanny growing up and she was from Chihuahua Mexico and my nanny's daughter worked for my dad um and they ended up having an affair and your nanny's daughter had had an affair got you and so then they got married and so my step family is all from Chihuahua Mexico but they've been with me since I was like four years old and so we have this like insanely blended family so like my dad is so like my step family is all Mexican. My mom's family is all Af- like all from Afghanistan and they're Muslim, but they're not like the most Muslim, but they're pretty Muslim. And we see them more now. We see, we see my aunts. I've never met my uncles. Like they, the men in that family just like refuse to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's it. And then, well, and then my parents, my dad and my stepmom are polyamorous. <laughs> so then they have they'll have girlfriends. Oh, wait. It's crazy. Wait. So then they have a girlfriend. You're going to be here forever because what? This is so interesting. And it's so, I mean, so they have a girlfriend and so she has, she has four kids and she lives with us and she has four kids and three of them are black. And they've, and I've lived with them for like the past two years. And so it's just like, so. Or, so your dad's current wife. Yeah. Their girlfriend's kids yeah. lived with you guys. Yeah. But only in the past like year and only one of them. Okay. So it's not like it's been like, I don't want to overstate it, but they're like, definitely like we're, we see them and like, I love them. And, um, so it, but it's just added, like, it's just like, now I'm like, we have the most diverse family right in the whole fucking world. So, okay. This is, I don't even know where to like, oh yeah. Sorry. I feel like you asked me, I feel like I, I try to like tell people about my family, but then everyone, like anytime I've ever gone on a date with somebody and they ask me about my family, I always start off by saying like, I will never expect you to remember this. Yeah, <laughs> that was a lot. I'm like trying to, I'm like trying to put the, put the lines together. Okay, this is that. No, but this is really interesting. So how do you, do you think this on any level, like um, parts of this, you had to like heal within yourself or like things that you had to really come to, like, let's get into that because how, how did you deal with this and get, just get into that. How was that for you? Yeah, so um so like I said, like we had, when I was a kid though, I really only grew up. My parents weren't poly when I was a kid. They were like, we knew they were doing some non-traditional relationship stuff when we were kids, but we didn't, like, it wasn't as overt as like, we are in a thruple now, you know? Mm-hmm. And now it's like, they're in a thruple and it's sort of hilarious. Cause I feel like I have the reverse situation that a lot of people have where like, 
like my dad is never like, so when are you going to get married and have kids? He's like, so have you thought about non-monogamy and are you going to go to grad school? <laughs> I love it. Oh, this is so dope because I mean, polyamory, this is, I don't, it's not new, but I think it's being a lot more accepted nowadays. Yeah. So that's really cool. Yeah. I think it back to IBS almost being like the catalyst for you getting yeah. into spirituality. So when you began to like really like look at yourself, like really mm-hmm. going inward, thinking about like for health purposes, like what was coming yeah. up more emotionally and mentally, what were the things yeah. that started, you, you know, started to become aware of? Yeah. So basically, so I've had this like clusterfuck of a family my whole life and like it's like this weird thing where I'm like an older child, but a middle child. And like, cause I have so many siblings, but then like, just me, like I would switch back and forth between my mom's house and my dad's house. And so at my mom's house, I was the older sister mm-hmm. and there were only two of us. And then at my dad's house, I was like one of five, you know? Right. And so I had had like digestive issues this whole time. I'd had like, I just had like a lot of issues my whole like childhood, like my whole teenage dumb was just full of me, like, like, re- like self-harming in a bunch of different ways. And so it's funny. Cause I don't think it took me 21 years to put all the dots together. And like, when I was, when I was in my twenties, in my early twenties, and I decided that I wanted to start working on my IBS, I was like, I, I had, I sort of knew that it wasn't going to heal. Like I knew intuitively that it wasn't going to heal until I um, really faced my eating disorder. And I think I was afraid that, cause like when I, because I knew I had IBS, like I had this internal idea that like the only way to heal it was to like go on a low FODMAP, like go on a really restrictive diet or like cut shit out or like, or like get, like I got like a, it's not a colonoscopy. It's like the reverse, like an endos- endoscopy. They were trying to see what was up with my digestive system. And this was when I was like 21. And honestly, looking back on it now, I realized that it was such a spiritual pivotal moment in my life. And I'm just realizing this as I say it to you, but as I was about to get that surgery, I just learned that my aunt had passed and she had died and she's on my mom's side. And when we talk about spirituality, I'll explain like why that means more, but this was a really deeply spiritual, like a grief filled time for me. And so I was like, I got to figure out what the fuck is wrong with me. Like, I'm so sick of being bloated. I'm so sick of having diarrhea all the time. And meanwhile, I was like getting drunk every weekend. And right. Like, you like, were putting two and two together at that point. Yeah. You know, I was like, so drunk, so stressed, had not like, was just not facing anything within me. And so I had this massive, like physical manifestation of all of this unhealed shit. That's exactly what was happening, right? You're trying to figure out why you're not feeling well, but every weekend getting wasted, you just ingesting like things that just aren't right for you. And that's mentally, physically, all of that stuff, you know? Yeah. And like during it, I was like student body president and I was like, really stressed. And I say that only because it like sounds like a busy, I say that not to say like, I was so successful or like, I would, I say that to say more like I was working so hard to prove to the world that I like had my shit together. Yeah. And then I'd like blackout on the weekends, Mm. you know? And so I, I sort of, I think I knew when I started to like work with my IBS in my early twenties, I was sort of like, this isn't going to heal until I do some other shit. And so it really wasn't, so that was probably a year before I got sober and I got sober in 2018 at the end of 2018, about three years ago now. And I just knew like I had been in therapy like I've been in therapy since I was like eight years old and like I went to an eating disorder clinic when I was 16 because like my parents had found out like my my grandmother had heard me making myself throw up and that was how my parents found out that I was bulimic and so they put me in a clinic but 
honestly, the big thing about the clinic, like, and this is the thing about healing, really eating disorders, like addictions, like for me also, it was about healing my IBS. So like my physical manifestations. And I don't want to say that like pain and physical manifestations, like disease and things like that aren't real because they fully are. But for me, so much of it was just like, it was just like I was saying, it was just like a physical manifestation of like unresolved stuff that I needed to deal with. And so when I was 16 and they put me in this eating disorder clinic, it was very much so like, I feel like I remember talking with the therapist and she was sort of like, yeah, this isn't you. Like, I don't really know what else to say, but like, cause I had a really strained relationship with my mom and dad. And again, it's not about blame, but I think it's really interesting that my parents knew enough to put me in therapy when I was eight years old, but I don't think they ever really sat with the question of like, how do I need to be in therapy? And like, how do I need to make sure, like, instead of just saying like, okay, Sabi, we're going to put you into therapy because we see that you're having a hard time instead of looking at the homes that they were creating and being like, how am I responsible? That part. And I think that, Ooh, that goes deep. When I tell you, I relate to so much of what you're saying. I can't even put it into words. When I was, um, I want to say it was like 15 ish. I was, I went, I was going to all girls school at the time and I hated it. All girls Catholic mm-hmm. school is like the worst thing my mm-hmm. parents have ever made me do. Mm-hmm. Hated it. And um, I was sitting in French class one day and my hand just tightened up. I dropped my pen and my arm just started moving up and down mm-hmm. involuntarily, like just moving on its own. And from mm-hmm. then on, I went to doctors, neurologists, all types of, did all types of testing, everything. And so my mom took me to therapy. And basically what we concluded was, I think it's deeper than anything physical. But we didn't, you know, didn't get to the point where we had to look at the, what was going on in the home. My therapist was literally like, if a neurologist is going to do a scan on your brain while you're sleeping and you're still having these physical movements, then we need to take a look at what's going on on a deeper level. But that really never happened. So I relate to the, you know, and it's not their fault. They did what they could with what, you know, with how they were raised and what they knew, but we really never got to the bottom of it. And it wasn't until... I I started my spiritual journey that I looked back and I was like, a lot of that was a physical manifestation of the pain and the trauma that I was dealing with spiritually, energetically, and all of that stuff. So it's just, yeah. Mm -hmm. 100%. And like, I think it's almost like, for me, it was so much of like, I am going to externalize this pain in every fucking way I can. I'm going to make myself throw up. I'm going to cut myself. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to be in abusive relationships. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to, like, I don't know what to do with this pain inside of me. And so it was almost like I was finding ways to make it happen outside of me. Absolutely. Cause yeah, cause it was then that I started getting into stuff that wasn't good for me and it lasted until my spirit got so tired and you know my my healing journey started but yeah it was it was like that I I wanted to be seen at that time I didn't really understand what that was but I wanted to be seen I needed to be heard and I none of that was happening and from that physical manifestation of that pain I was feeling it led me down the a very dark road of substances and you know just giving my body to just anybody you know just not Mm -hmm. loving myself the way I really should have had we really taken a look at what was really like the trauma and pain that was really going on? So I was talking. Oh yeah, go, go, go ahead, go ahead. I just, th- like thinking of this, like, again, it's so hard to talk about parents without being like, I blame them because the reality is that I don't blame them. But as an adult, like I heard this thing that someone said in AA once and they were saying that like a parent had said to a child, like, I am responsible for everything that is wrong with you. Mm. And from here on out, you are responsible for healing that. Mm. And I was just like, fuck, like that is exactly it. Right. Cause like, I feel like that's something so many of us want to want to hear from our parents 
it's just like the accountability of like accountability yes because it's not blame it's accountability of just like I did this and I think so much of our work in adulthood is being like oh here's how my parents did this and then we have to like empathize with like how they were doing the best they could and like everyone is fucking doing the best they can. And my parents were doing the best they could with the tools that they had and like what they're doing, what lessons they need to learn in this lifetime. And also it could have been done better. And also that is really important. I understand this, but there's also this part of it too. Yes. Accountability is so important because again, I, I can't be mad. You know, they, they did what they could, but let's just say, yeah, I did. I did that. That happened. I, um, I was on another podcast and I, it was the very first podcast I'd ever been on. And I was really Mm -hmm. excited to tell my story and I was very open, very vulnerable. Yeah. And my mom was like, why did you tell that? I'm like, but that was my story. Yeah. That's what I was actually thinking, like, as I was talking, whenever I talk about my parents, I'm like, fuck, if they listen to this and they're like going to be mad at me. But it's the truth, right? We're not, it's not necessarily placing blame. It's just literally saying what happened. Exactly. Exactly. No, exactly. And it's like, I think I was, I had a really hard conversation with my dad a couple weeks ago where I just like told him, I was like, I don't feel like there has been accountability. And like, I wish you would have seen that when I was a kid, instead of just putting me in therapy, you would have shown up for me more. And I was like, here are the ways you could have physically shown up for me and the ways you chose to not show up for me. And that hurts. Yeah. And like, I have to deal with that hurt and I have to hear that hurt and that pain so that I can heal. And I told them basically straight up, I was just like, I'm angry at you. And I don't blame you, but the only way that I am going to be able to not be angry at you for the rest of my life is if I, if I say own my truth, right? If I can say like, this happened and this hurt me and like, it's not your fault. And like, I basically was like, I think for me, it's like, if you can't in any relationship, in my relationship that I have now with like my partner or my friends, like if there's not accountability when we fuck up, when I fuck up, like if I'm not accountable for what I did, then how is the person going to trust me again? Where's the trust? Where's the level of communication? Right. So, you know, it, it goes even deeper when it's a parent. Yes. And I think it's so hard. I think with parent relationships, it's so hard because it feels so scary to be like, yeah. But I feel like at this point in my life, I'm like, I'm an adult who gets to say what I deserve and what I don't deserve. Mm -hmm. And that is a part of how I get to heal myself and how I get to show up as my best self. And also I'm an adult and I get to say how I want to be parented or not parented. And that comes with creating boundaries. That's what that looks like for us at this time, especially when we're healing especially healing. And for me, I think this new crazy thing I'm working with is this idea that I can make requests. Like when I had this hard conversation Mm -hmm. with my parents, I was like, here's a really tough boundary. And like, here's what my idea of, of the relationship I want to have with my father looks like. This is what I want. Can you show up this way? Right you you want and then they get to decide right because like then it's not blaming like because the the question is like can you do it and then I have to be okay with them being with them saying no yeah I was just gonna say that um a friend said something to me a few years ago that really shifted my perspective on my relate my healing relationship with my parents she was like what if it's not our parents purpose to heal in this lifetime like what if it's not their spirit's purpose to heal this lifetime and I was like, like, damn, because that's, that's really deep. And that's really true. It's a good question. Mm-hmm. What if it's not, then what, what do I do with that information at, you know, at this point, if I'm having a conversation with them, if I'm going through whatever situation, mm-hmm. it's for me to understand that it's, they're probably not going to get it now. And I yeah. have to be okay with that. I have to be with, okay with them not choosing something that would be beneficial for our relationship. 
you know, I have to continue my healing. I have to continue my journey. But what does our relationship look like afterwards? You know, then I have to create these boundaries with that understanding. But it really, it helped my relationship with them because it took off that pressure of me wanting to like help them fix stuff and like make things clearer to them and, you know, bring some things to their awareness. I, it's not my responsibility anymore. So that perspective helped me release that responsibility. And I'm like, okay, if you don't want to do this, that's fine because it's not, it's not up to me anymore. And I can't take on that burden anymore. And it's like so not, it's like depersonalizes it, which I love, you know? It's almost like this thing where it's like my parents are my parents. And also my parents are just like, little babies who had their own traumatizing relationship exactly exactly you know that is so funny that you said that because I see them like that sometimes sometimes when I'm having these conversations with my mom and she'll say something and I'm like oh my goodness you haven't oh there's I can see where that pain is coming from I you know I can feel that this is something that you dealt with in childhood that you really wish maybe your parents would have dealt with better or whatever and I see that pain coming through right now um so it allows me to have a lot more empathy and it allows me to relate to them a lot more that they too are there's things that they need to heal from from their childhood and you know whatever pain that was caused in their lives and they probably won't have the opportunity to do that because of the fact that they come from a completely different world we're talking about immigrants here you know what yeah. I mean? like I'm first generation so my parents only moved here like a few years before I was born yeah so their understanding of life comes from whatever Cameroon taught them, whatever that Christian world taught them, you know? And I'd say like, I think like the layer there too, right? Is that it's what that world taught them and then what America taught them about who yeah, they are in yeah, America. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. hundred percent. Like I think about it so often, like what my life would be like if my mom wasn't if like Afghanistan was a habitable place, mm. you know, like if my people had been respected and like if Western imperialism had not destroyed the country, you know, like, and I think about that and I, I don't think it would be perfect by any means, but it's just like this. And I think also being biracial, like being half white and being half Af Afghan, it's just like, it's this question that I think I have that really for me requires deep internal work with myself of like, how do I make peace with the parts of me that are both the colonizer and the colonized? That's and what, exactly what I wanted to get into next because you brought this up um, in the training and it was something that really made me look at you like this is like, wow, because the awareness in that. And I don't know if a lot of other biracial you know, people are going through this where they're now thinking, okay, there's one part of me that had been colonized and then there's the other part of me that colonized. How do you heal those aspects of pain simultaneously? So how are you, how are you doing that for yourself and for your lineage? Yeah, I think what was so interesting and something that was so profound at the training that we did with Wellness Official was that like, I got some really clear messages on like my purpose in this lifetime. And I've done a couple, like I've done a past life regression before. And I, I know I've been with my mom's spirit in a past life. Mm. And so my mom went from Afghanistan to India and I was, I basically worked as like a street vendor on the street that she lived outside of, but my spirit was supposed to be looking after her. Mm. And the message that came through really clearly during that regression was that like in this lifetime, the reason I was born so close to her was because I needed to learn that it was no longer my job to look after her. Wow. And I guess that isn't really a lineage question. That's more just like me, but it, feel, it feels I like- think part of that, I think that awareness is part, I mean, you had to heal that for your lineage, you know? Absolutely. Well, it's like- yeah. Such a big part of it was that, so because I was disowned by my mom's family, um, and like when I say disowned, I want to be really clear, just like, so my mom married a white guy, and that's not, it's not super great, you know, like it's just not what they would have wanted, and like our family is more of like 
a conservative Muslim family. And I almost like, I don't, I feel fear talking about it publicly sometimes because I don't want people to weaponize it against Muslims, against Afghans, just because my family sort of upholds some of those stereotypes. But it's the truth and it's what happened. And so they disowned us when I was, when my mom married my dad. So I don't have any memories of my grandfather. I've literally, the uncles will not talk to us. Like I remember like basically like being at my, I'd, we'd see my grandmother and we'd go to her house and she loved me and I could feel that. And also it's like this weird thing of just knowing that you are like the shame of the family almost, you know, like it's just this feeling that you can't shake off you because I'd hear from my cousins about family trips that they would do with my uncles and it would be all my cousins. And I just knew that I, I would never be invited to that. You know, I would never be a part of that family. I had, we had a relationship with my aunts. So the aunts still talk to us and I have relationships with those cousins, but, um, it's just fucking crazy. Like, it's just wild to me that like one time I was at Ikea and I saw my uncle and he, we were like less than 10 feet away from each other. And I was with my mom and he was with his kid and his wife. And he did not look at us, like just would not acknowledge us at all. And it, it was honestly something that I really had to work through like this feeling of, and especially with everything going on in Afghanistan the past few months, it's been super weird. Cause like people, when, th- when things started happening in Afghanistan, and I mean, things have always been happening in Afghanistan since like the eighties. So it's, it's like a Western thing to say, like now that the Taliban is taking over in Afghanistan, like that is bad. And also things have been happening for a long time, you know? but this is very bad. And, um, but like when that was happening and people were reaching out to me, primarily like my white friends were like reaching out and doing that thing where they're like, hi, like, I love you. I'm thinking of you. I'm thinking of your family. Yeah. That thing, (laughs) you know, doing that thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, okay. But it's like, I don't think like I was crying to my partner about this because I felt so emotionally activated. But the thing that's hard is that I am very removed from my Afghan roots. Mm-hmm. And like, I do not feel wanted by that community. And, and not by all Afghans, obviously, but like by my immediate Afghans, by right? Family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, it's almost like, because I'm half white, it's like this imposter feeling of like, I didn't grow up like you guys. So I'm not one of you guys. And so I don't get to be sad. Like, I don't get to have these feelings. I was just going to say, do you feel shame around your whiteness? I think I did. I think I've been trying really hard to do some healing around it. And um, it's actually really interesting that like when you came up to me and you were like, I think it's really important for us as women of color to like have these conversations. The term woman of color has been such a like, I, for me, I'm like, (sighs) like makes me sort of afraid because there was this girl who I identified and I felt like this was really passive, but I identified on Twitter as like all other races because it was a poll where it was like black women, black men, Hispanic men, Hispanic women, white women, white men, all other ethnicities. Mm -hmm. And so I was like all other ethnicities because I usually identify as biracial. And however, on the census, Afghanistan is technically considered white. I didn't know that until like the past year. Like I thought it was because like, but sometimes like, because it depends on which part of the Middle East you count because Afghanistan is not technically the Middle East. We just got lumped into the Middle East because of terrorism. But Afghanistan is more like Central Asia, South Asia. So culturally, from my understanding, we have more in common with like Pakistan than we do with Saudi Arabia. Right. And so, and like, if you look at me, like I look more Asian, like I look more. That's exactly why I said it, because whether or not you're half white, you present as someone who is a woman of color. And it's, I think, very clear. 
if anyone you guys listening go look at Sabi's Instagram <laughs> and you'll right away she's white passing but she absolutely can tell she is a woman of color that feels really validating to me so I really yeah, appreciate absolutely. that um because this girl came at me on Twitter and was just like white people are always trying to pretend that they're not white and like all this stuff. And I was like, well, technically like my tribe is Hazara. And so like, which is of Asian, like of Mongolian descent. Mm -hmm. And like, so if anything, I'm like Asian, but it's like, because of like, cause literally just like on a facial feature, I don't know. It's really just a clusterfuck because also the US census is like who the US census was created. Like we create these, rigid boundaries of like because really I think it's all so that we can circle around white supremacy right and then like white that is that's exactly what that is yeah and like white supremacy gets to dictate who gets to be white and who gets to not be white Mm -hmm. and then all these other categories are made in between white and black to separate like the two and then there's just this middle yeah and it's just like another just fucking imperialist thing And so I'm like, okay, like if this person is calling me white based off of how they, it was just like, but it was really hard for me. Yeah. Like I was like, oh God, like, have I been identifying wrong for like the past three years? Like, is somebody else going to come for me? And like, I feel really lucky that I have um, Middle Eastern friends and like, and that I, I literally made it like a thing in the past, like four years where I was like, I need more like brown friends. Like I need more yeah, friends that look I like me. I understand that too. Like, cause I grew up um, in a very white like neighborhood. Like now my neighborhood is, has actually shifted a lot. And I think that's cause we kind of like moved. We didn't do it, but like the white people kind of, the more people of color came in, like they kind of left. But there were times I was the only black girl in the classroom. So for a long time, I was like, I need, like, I need to see myself in my group of friends. Like, it was very important that my circle become, like, a representation of who I was because it was starting to look very, very white, and I needed more more of my people surrounding me. So I absolutely understand that when you get to, when you begin to break down all the aspects of your identity and you begin to love these parts of yourself that were once shamed, that you're like, oh, wait, actually, no, I want to surround myself with this more. Because again, you are clearly a woman of color. It is very clear to me. So I can understand you wanting to have that part of you, but then also fighting that, not fighting really, but having so many people in your ear, like, no, but you're white, you're white, you're white. And you, you know, your lineage is this and your lineage is that. And, you know, so you're healing the traumatic parts of your Afghan lineage, but then also healing the, the terror and the crime you know what the colonialism on your white side it's just like a lot of healing going on girl for you no and it's like it's really interesting because like and again the oppression that I face is like like it's not like I mean Stacey is a black woman it's just not like I don't experience what you experience right Mm -hmm. like I am white passing and so I get a lot of privilege from that I have a white dad like so I never want to be like I never in a way want to be like taking space from other people, you know, or being like, I'm so oppressed as a woman of color, you know? It's more just like, I just think that being biracial is such a like mind fuck because also, is it okay that I've been swearing like constantly? Absolutely, it's fine doing it, yeah. (laughs) I think being mixed is just like so confusing because it's this place of like, sometimes people greet me with open arms and are like like how you came up to me and were like as women of color we need to be talking about this and sometimes people greet me with like screaming at me for being too white you know and like that has only happened a couple times admittedly and so it's not like a big thing and I think it was I think it was really really good for me to face because I think I needed to I needed to work through and examine my own white passing privilege, my own biracial privilege. I needed to do that work. And so I'm really glad that it happened. And also I think it was, I just think it's so weird because being biracial, you like can't be put into a box. Like I can't check like one box that will 
sum up my identity for somebody. And so it's like figuring out like, and then being disowned on top of it, then it's like figuring out like, okay, how do I get to, like, I was just straight up like, hey, I need some Muslim friends. Like, and I started making Muslim friends and it was like the most wonderful thing for my soul and so good for me. And it's something that like my white family won't ever understand. Like that's another layer of it too, where like when I was 18, I remember my dad basically being like, I know you're going through this whole, like my dad is just white and he doesn't understand. He's like a white right-leaning man who's in his Mm seventies. And I remember one time he said something like, I was talking about my IBS. I'll bring it back to IBS. And he's like, you know, I thought breeding with a woman of a different race would have made you stronger. No way. Yeah. And I was just like, what the fuck did you just say? There's a lot to unpack there. I know. (laughs) You know, there's just so much to unpack. And I don't even know where to begin. But, you know, Black women have this, there's this strong black woman stereotype right Mm -hmm. and when you look at our history just our history in general but our history especially with the healthcare system where black women are not given as much care and Mm -hmm. are basically like ignored when it comes to like being given medicine and like our levels of pain we're ignored because the doctors there's this idea that we have a higher level of pain our threshold for pain like we can tolerate a lot of pain so we're not cared for as much. We're not given the kind of me- medicine that we need. And, and so it's like, no, black women are strong and they can, you know, take on whatever, da, da, da. And, you know, we're now working towards like deprogramming that idea because it kind of takes away from us being human almost. So it's like, oh, you're strong, you hand anything. So it doesn't really matter what you go through. So now that I'm hearing that, it's almost like the same thing where it's like, oh, you should be strong enough to heal, you know, deal with stuff because you have this, um, you just have this foreign blood in you. And it's just like, that's, that's crazy. That is crazy. Dude, it's just such a mind. Like, it's just, it's been so weird because there's parts of me that like hate my whiteness and like want nothing to do with it. And I have had to heal those parts. Like, Cause I can't walk around this earth hating myself, you know? Right. And then there are parts of me that hate my brownness because I feel isolated from, like, I feel like I'm not allowed to be in that space, mm-hmm. but I have to heal both of those parts of me. And like, I can either spend my life hating myself or I can like, f- like go out there and like make some Brown friends that look like me that have experiences and more than even just like, look like me, but like have, like I have Iranian friends who have like what really it comes down to is like that experience of having a parent who is who is born in a Muslim country yeah right and like who is from and who yeah who does look like me who looks like me who has a family like mine who has like family who has a family that has values like theirs are who feels like they grew up with a parent who didn't get their jokes because their parent is from a different country and does not understand sarcasm in the US, you know? And like, that is a, that is a very, it's a much smaller scale. I'm not like, my life is not being threatened and like, I can safely walk around this world for the most part. And like most of the stuff that I experience is like exotification. And like, I have this clear memory of like a boy I dated when I was like 14 being like, I'm so glad you're not white because you just don't look like other girls, you know? And like, just that, like, it's fucked up in its own way. And it is not, and it is also not that bad, but like, I still have to heal it. You know, not that bad, but it's still something that it's affecting you on so many levels. We'll definitely have to do a part two because this is, it's just so interesting. Everything you're saying, there's just so many levels to um, your identity. And because of that, there's just so many aspects to heal. You know what I mean? And um, 
because they're almost like not on opposite end of the spectrum, but like there's this and then there's that and then there's this and then there's that. And there's, you know, how do you then balance out who you are and what, you know, what you bring to both sides? There's just so much to um to get into. So I I wanna do another long conversation because we haven't even, we've just gotten just a little bit into like the spirituality and the wellness aspect and we haven't even gotten into breath work. And I really want us to have the time to dive deep into all of that. So if you're okay, we will schedule. Oh, I would love to, yeah. Because this is so interesting. And now I'm like, I can't believe that I'm now just learning all these parts of you, which is why I wanted to do this in the first place because we're just so dynamic. And because we experience intersectionality in different ways, in same ways, like I think this conversation is really important. So yeah, we're gonna schedule part two because we're just getting started with you, Savvy. Oh, this has been so much fun. Like you speaking, I'm just like, like what your life is so dynamic. I don't mean to like, and sort of on the spirituality note, and then I'll totally let you go. But just like one thing I want to say that's helped me heal a lot of this was like just this like deep knowing that like I was given this story for a purpose. And like I'm a writer, and so to me, it feels like, like I write about my family, obviously. And like, to me, it just feels like I had to have been born into this clusterfuck of a family with all these different layer, all these different layers of identity with all these different layers of things happening in my life for a purpose. And I think it makes me like, and I think it's helped me understand, like there's this, this term that this academic has called world traveling. Mm -hmm. And this idea of like, so there is like, I, I want to make sure I'm not sure I'm quoting it directly, but her name is Maria Lugones. And it's basically this idea that like white people are are at the center in, in American, in American worlds Mm -hmm. and white people are here and they get to have, or like white upper middle-class people are here. Let's say that. And they have one, one world that they have to live in. Right. Because they go to school in like a white neighborhood. Like they go, like people come to their world world, to serve them. So like they have a nanny and a cleaning lady Mm -hmm. and um, whatever else they have. Those people come to them at the center of their world. And like, so they don't necessarily... And I don't want to say like, and they don't, basically they don't necessarily have to travel yeah, throughout all the out of their, yeah, mm-hmm, of their world to experience life. Absolutely. But if you're not born in that world, then you have to travel. You have to learn how to travel and like go from one world to the next and like figure out who you are in each of those different each worlds. World. Talk about having an identity crisis, especially like right after puberty. I was just like, who am I? Like, who am I? And like, cause growing up in an immigrant ho- household, but then going outside of the household and not even being looked at as African. And then, you know, being in, in black spaces and being looked at as the black girl who acts white and all of these things, because I grew up in white neighborhoods and white spaces. So there's all of these different aspects of my identity that I had to learn how to navigate through and live through. And like, how can I be part of this world? And then also be part of this world and how do I act here? And then when I leave this space, how do I then act there? It's a lot. How do we do it? How totally. do we do it? And why? And I think yeah. So much of the healing comes from me being able to show up to each of the worlds I live in and like the person that I am when yeah. I show up. Yes. Are you do you love who you are in each of those spaces? Yeah. It's Absolutely. So- but yeah, anyways, identity stuff is wild. And like someone at our training, Valin, looked at me when I was talking about like my pain and talking about like hating my whiteness and like also having a lot of issues with my brown side. And like Valin just looking at me and being like, your lineages were supposed to meet. I remember that. And I thought that was so powerful because I think that was something that you really needed to hear because I'm sure that you spent most of your life feeling bad for kind of walking on the line between these two identities, but they had to meet for a reason. You know, they had to come together within you for a reason. For so sure. 
in the next part two, we're definitely going to talk about how you were, how you walk those worlds and how you're healing both worlds and how your work, how your purpose is, you know, not only serving your community, but serving your lineage. I really cannot wait to get into that. That's good stuff here, babes. So until next time, guys, we'll be right back. We'll be back with Savvy Habib. Thanks, love. Yeah, thank you, honey. It was so good talking to you. Babes, hold on for just one more second. Before you leave, I want to thank you again for tuning into this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. I invite you to take a look at the descriptions and click on the links that you see. I have so many options for you to work with me further if that's what you wish for. We can do breath work or we can do some one-on-one coaching. With this option, you have 30 days where we will take two to three things that you really want to transform, that you really want to heal through, and we'll do an intensive coaching around those three things for 30 days. So again, take a look at those options. Follow me on Instagram if you're not already. All of these links are in my Instagram bio. But yes, just more ways for us to connect, and we'll talk later. Bye. Bye.